do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.asade.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new Asade Geo Exchange on Do Better. My name is Oscar Fernandez, and I'm a senior researcher at Asade Geo. In today's podcast, we will look at two very symbolic anniversaries related to China the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, and the 50th anniversary of the first visit by US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. To help us analyze these two events, we have a very special guest, Dr. Yu Jie, a senior research fellow on China at Chatham House, which is one of the world's top think tanks, an associate fellow at LSC Ideas, and a former guest lecturer at the Asadi MBA. Welcome, Dr. Yu, and thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Oscar. I'm so delighted to return to Isades. Thank you. On July 1st, the Communist Party of China celebrated its 100th birthday. And as expected, the party put on quite a show. Can you tell us what the celebrations consisted of and what message the party was trying to send to the Chinese and also to the world at large? Well, uh, the show is, a, as you said, is a quite a show. Um, It's sending, I would say, three messages. Um, firstly, um, the longevity of the communism in China, uh, which has lasted a um, hundred years. And this is perhaps um, very different from the previous Communist Party, like the Soviet Communist Party lasted only about 95 years. And then secondly, I think also Xi Jinping, what President Xi trying to do is trying to tell um, his 95 million Communist Party members by saying that the Chinese Communist Party is the only solo legitimate ruling party which will enable to run China in the next decades or if not next centuries to come. Um, then obviously he has um, tell everyone that China has attained one of those two centennial goals that he set up since he came to power which is to say that by 2021, in time of China's, China's Communist Party's formation, that China has now become moderately prosperous society. Um, the third one, I think he's very keen to send a message to the rest of the world uh, by suggesting that China, it is not only stand up, but China has also become a very strong global power that China is not interested to be lectured by the Western liberal democracy. I mean, we hear that message very clear. And we also hear that sense of uproar from the Chinese audience yesterday at Tiananmen Square. So I think that the three key messages he's very keen to send. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to forget now uh, that in early 2020, some analysts claimed that COVID-19 could be a Chernobyl-like event for the Communist Party. Now it seems like the party and Xi Jinping in particular have emerged even stronger from the crisis. Would you say that the party has reached its peak domestic popularity precisely at the centenary of its foundation and precisely when China's worldwide reputation has taken a bit of a hit uh, because of the management of the COVID-19 crisis? Regarding the trust of the Chinese government and what we need to take is we need to take a longer perspective suggesting 10 years ago or 11 years ago before Xi Jinping came to power. And this was the party which has been troubled by the run fund corruption. 
and the trust from the ordinary population was extremely low. So it started from very low base. And since Xi Jinping came to power, and he introduced this anti-corruption campaign, and irrespective the political means or the political purpose he may have, but his anti-corruption campaign was incredibly popular among the ordinary Chinese people. And then the Chinese population felt this is the party now really truly speak to the ordinary population, not just for the party elites and not just for the entrepreneurial classes. So I think it's about a rising in confidence towards the party and whether it reaches peak and we don't really know. And what I've perceived so far, I mean, judging by not going to China in the last, last year or so, what I've perceived so far is that very strong sense of confidence among the population, uh, extremely high morale across the society. And also the party managed to attract attention and the popularity among the younger generation of the Chinese public. So I may counter argue that point, Chinese Communist Party's confidence reaches peak because of that younger generation placed a certain trust towards the party. And therefore it is very hard to argue when that sense of confidence will be picked. And also bear in mind, this is the party which is rather flexible in terms of ideology, but rather ruthless in terms of the management of economy. So I think at the end of the day, the party will have to make a trade-off. It is what will be the social, ultimate social contract to justify the legitimacy of the party. I think ultimately that has not been changed since 1989, since the Tiananmen event, which is to say that it's the economic performance that will judge the legitimacy of the party. And so far, a made rather satisfactory answer to its population. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, ideology and the economy, and um, prominent economists like Branko Mila Milanovic argue that China can actually no longer be called a, a communist country. Uh, in today's China, uh, more than 80% of GDP is produced by the private sector, and more than 90% of employment is in private and self-employed sectors. Uh, would it be fair to say that after Deng Xiaoping launched his reform in the late 70s, the Communist Party of China became less communist and more Chinese, so to speak. Um, what communist features did the party preserve? Well, um, I think one of the key features that the Communist Party preserved is this, this ideas of the so-called principle contradiction. I mean, this is a very much a communist dogma term suggesting what is the most pressing challenge that the governor face to governing a country. Now, at the moment, the principal contradiction has been shifted since 2017 during the 19th Party Congress to suggest that the contradiction between the level of living standard and the vis-a-vis -vis that the ordinary population are looking for to have a better life, which is to say that the key challenge for China, it is to reduce that income gap between the richer and the poor. Um, so I would suggest it. Yes, the Communist Party, despite by being ideologically flexible, but it still return a certain key elements of Marxism-Leninism. Um, so that's why it still refer itself as being a Communist Party. But nevertheless, I mean, we can't deny that the fact is the private enterprises which hold the Chinese employment as what you suggested. And it is also that China 
by um, return to the world stage, enjoy the benefits of the previous round of economic globalization and by increasing its economic ties with major trading partners such as United States and European Union to enrich itself. So even though by being a communist government, it enjoyed the benefit that has been brought by the capitalist society across the world. Um, so in, in recent years, ever since uh, Xi Jinping uh, came into power, uh, what would you say were the main changes that occurred within the Communist Party? Would you characterize Xi as an ideologue? And in that case, what is his ideology and how has it influenced the party? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think two things are very clear. And firstly, that um, China will not return in the era of the Cultural Revolution those traumatic 10 years that China endured because himself suffered personally and so as to the country too. Now, secondly, I think his keen idea it is to introduce that ominous presence of the Chinese Communist Party across all aspects of the society. So parties everywhere, um, like for example, even within the private enterprises and he will have to in introduce the uh, Communist Party to play a much bigger role in charge of the corporate governance. Um, so he's placing the party in everywhere. But thirdly, I think he's also very keen to send a message to the rest of the world that the Chinese Communist Party and also the China as a nation, it is now doing an experiment. And that experiment has been unprecedented and it want to give a try. So I think it's that sense of experiment and also implies that the Chinese model will not be replicable by the rest of the world. And what China is simply interested in doing is interesting in doing its own thing. So that's why it comes with a very strong rebuttal when President Biden suggested that democracy is now under attack by the Chinese Communist Party. I think precisely it's because Xi Jinping and his leaders, uh, his colleagues wanted to make sure that leave China alone and China just want to do this experiment. I mean, I think that's the mismatch between the two. So let's look at the future now, uh, because in 2049, the Communist Party of China is hoping to celebrate another big anniversary. It will be 100 years since the foundation of the People's Republic of China. So you mentioned uh, some goals that were set for this year's anniversary. What goals has the party set for that date in 2049? And what threats does it most fear? Do they come from outside China's borders, from the Chinese population, or, or from within the ranks of the party itself? Um, it's the second centenary goal. So, um, which is to say by 2049, and China will become a, a uh, prosperous and um, the country which already joined the club of middle to high level income countries. Um, that is the mission that the Chinese Communist Party has been taken. But whether they will be able to achieve that goal, um, there's obviously three challenges which I listed on my recent article, and which is to say that whether the party will resolve the issue between the rich and poor, that widening income gap. So whether the income distribution will become more equitable. And secondly, whether um, the party would allow the market to play a much bigger, uh, bigger force to determine the economic activities. And the lastly, and whether China will be able to keep, uh, to have sound economic relationship with trade partners 
but well ideologically apart. Now, I consider the three challenges are intertwined and not necessarily one is more important than another. I mean, just to give example on the income inequality and in China nowadays, um, we have a billionaire classes, you know, those who um, have enormous amount of asset. Whereas on the other hand, we also have migrant workers and working in the factories that precisely producing the exports and to exports in Europe and in America. So if China's relationship with United States and European Union continue to worsen, and this surely would reduce the capacity for China to export at the same time, therefore um, the economic well-being of those migrant workers will surely be impacted as well. Now, secondly, on this market issue, as we all know that market force is acting as an invisible hand to, dist to distribute resources, to determine where resources has been given. Um, but however, on certain social measures, such as schooling, social welfare, and property price, and it does need a government intervention in order to make sure the equitable access. So again, where's the boundary between the party and the market to be placed in here? Would this because by requiring determining bigger market force and perhaps again, further reduce the chance for the migrant workers and for the impoverished population to achieve better economic well-being. So again, it's intertwined. And just to offer you an alarming number, I mean, I know you quoted uh, um, the economist Branko Menabrek, and he suggested China shouldn't be considering as a communist country anymore. But again, China has its own number. The Chinese Premier Li Keqiang um, last year um, suggested quite famously that 40% of the Chinese population still live um, under monthly salary of $112 a month. 40% of the population. So that's a quite alarming, I mean, considering um, compared the gap between China and the United States. So China still stands quite a sizable difference compared with the United States and other advanced economies. Yeah, so this segues uh, quite nicely into my next question, which is about uh, another anniversary that may not receive as much media attention as the centenary of the Communist Party. But on July 9th, uh, there is the 50th anniversary of the first visit to China of US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. So can you tell us why this visit was so important at the time and what it meant uh, in the context of the Cold War? Well, it was so important because that China was isolated um, back to the 1960s and 1970s. And also Mao Zedong had this mission of uh, revolutionize the world order but obviously the entire experiment failed uh, very uh, miserably. Um, so that time China was extremely isolated and China does need to have a partners and does need to fund, I wouldn't say alliances, but someone that China will be able to um, secure itself. And also plus that time, the relationship with the Soviet Union has turning from bad to worse. And therefore China desperately do need to have another great power to be friends with China. And then obviously this comes to the very moment also come from the mindset of President Richard Nixon. I mean, he wrote his article at Foreign Affairs back to 1968. What he didn't want to do is he didn't want to have this so-called angry isolation from the Chinese population. So that sense of angry isolation of massive Chinese uh, population to creating a further difficulties of the United States in order to compete with Soviet Union. 
So that's why I suggesting this um, is a very important historical milestone. But also for, from the Chinese perspective, this basically opened the doors of China to be able to establish diplomatic relations with many other major countries in the world. And also before the visit, and China resumed, the Communist China resumed its position in the UN Security Council. So that's another historical milestone. So basically that really laid the foundation of further Chinese economic reform um, from 1979. So I would actually consider that 1972, the week in February is the week that changed the world. So we don't actually have to go back uh, so many decades to remember better times in US-China relations. Um, actually, as recently as 2011, uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met in China when they were both vice presidents. And Biden addressed a group of high school students in the presence of Xi and told everyone, we don't fear, and I'm quoting here, we don't fear a rising China. We welcome a rising China, not only for you, but for our own self-interest, end quote. So how much has the picture changed 10 years later? And what do you expect of the Biden-Xi relationship? Well, things has changed a lot. Um, I think for the precise reason that change has come from economic, technological, and also political front. On the economic front, and obviously China is now consolidated its status as the second largest economy in the world. And then China is also now changing its economic strategy that become more inward focused, become more interested in rebalancing its economy by driven by consumption and less so by export. So um, that is to say is prepared perhaps the worst to come for the US-China relations precisely for that reason. Now on technology front, and we found on certain sectors such as AI, robotics and quantum computing, and China has already become the leading force in those fields, which already challenge the Americans' uh, global champion status in terms of technological innovator. And then obviously with the mindset of US policymakers that technology can only be controlled by uh, or monopolized by American or by American allies, and it cannot be controlled by communist China, which has a very different political ideology compared with the United States. So that's another alarm sent by um, not just President Biden, but also President Trump and President Obama as well. And then thirdly, I think it's on this ideology. It's precisely because when President Xi came to power and obviously he has abolished term limits and he also introduced what I said earlier, the centrality of the party across different society. And American administration perhaps realized the previous engagement policy, engaging China to inducing economic change and therefore ultimately were led into a political change to make China become like a liberal democracy and perhaps this project will fail. So that really prompted the American administration to change its tactics in terms of engage with China. So I can only see that the relationship will not be very easy and it will be stagnated and perhaps will be from bad to worse because ultimately this is the competition at all front. This is not just a competition in economics and military, but this is also a competition of ideas. So in a recent piece on foreign affairs, uh, Wang Jixi from Peking University argued that before Donald Trump's presidency, there was an implicit understanding between the US and China. Uh, on the one hand, the US would not openly attempt to destabilize China's internal order 
And on the other, China would not intentionally weaken the US-led international order. Do you agree that this understanding existed? And if so, do you think that it has now been broken? Well, the understanding certainly existed during the Obama era. Um, so that's why United States and China will be able to resolve certain global issues such as climate change and international financial governance. Um, but again, I said earlier, it's precisely because China has now grown so much stronger and this challenge to the democracy and that make the political elites in the United States feel deeply uncomfortable that they wouldn't feel quite right to letting the Communist Party to run the world's second largest economy. I think it's that sense of deep, feel deeply uncomfortable, but also this combined with the weakening of democracy at home for United States for itself, you know, after four years with Donald Trump, a rather erratic president, um, disrupt so much of the rules and institutions of democracy. And therefore, I think it's almost like that sense of self-doubt come from United States and therefore they realize if they have that sense of self-doubt and then perhaps the challenge come from the external challenge, it is not internal challenge. Actually, the challenges is from both from, both from China and also as well as from domestic space in the United States. So uh, you mentioned before the strategic reasons why the US reached out to China in the 1970s. Uh, with some analysts speaking now uh, of a new Cold War, uh, do you think that we will see a similar move in the coming years, but sort of in reverse with the US reaching out to Russia instead of China uh, in order to isolate Beijing? Nowadays, we can all admit that in terms of economy, Russia is only the secondary economic player. So even if that um, President Biden would like to get close to President Putin to establish some kind of um, partnership, um, at the end of the day, this won't help to counter against China that much because we're facing a very complex world nowadays, economically intertwined much closer than in a time of Cold War era, but politically far more polarized. And you will see at the end of the day, no matter how bad that political relationship between China and the United States has been, the Wall Street has always remained as the best friend for China and for the Chinese government. I mean, it, it sounds quite ironical at the end of the day because of the economic might, the economic inter, um, the, the economic inter, uh, the closenesses between two countries have perhaps prevented the relationship with going even further into an era of free fall. But on the other hand, I think, I don't know how long this would last because Beijing has also signaling that China and the United States were now entering a period of protracted war or protracted competition. So the, war, the phrase of protracted competition was referring by Mao Zedong back to 1937 in a time of China-Japan relations. But then on the other hand, now we're facing a very similar scenario and elongated conflicts between two great powers at the same time. Um, so even if that United States perhaps will have some kind of diplomatic rapprochement with Vladimir Putin, but Russia is not the same economic animal as China. Mm -hmm. And that's where the difficulties arise. I mean, I'm not saying that China has done everything 100% correct, 
you know, the dictate to, to tango. There are also mistakes that China made in the past few years too. Like for example, in terms of diplomacy, it confused itself from speaking tough vis-a-vis -vis representing that sense of inner strength, actually speaking much softer, but behave more diligently. And that would actually present more inner strength. So let me ask you one final and very brief question, because I mentioned before that some analysts are referring to a Korean scenario as a new Cold War. Do you agree with this way of framing US-China relations today? No, um, I disagree. It is not new Cold War. And what we're going to expect to see is we're going to see an all-front competition. And that competition, it is not just on ideology, but that competition It is on economics, it is on technology, and it's also on people's mindset. So it's a full-scale competition, but it's not exactly the Cold War because within the Cold War time, it is mostly about arms race and ideological conflicts and leave the economic aside because Soviet Union is an isolated economy. So I would not necessarily consider it as a new Cold War. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Yu, for your time today and um, for helping us analyze these two very important occasions for China, in particular, the centenary of the Communist Party. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. And thanks a lot to the audience as well for being there. And let me remind everyone that we will continue with other podcasts in this Sadegio Exchange series. So stay tuned for that. Have a good day and take care. Bye bye. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do Better.